This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we've been wrestling with many topics, uh, some challenging ones, and we thank you uh, for the Word of God that reveals to us um, your character, who you really are, and also your, um, uh, your providence and your treatment of human beings in love and in a way that is in accordance with your character. We thank you, Lord. Be with us in this meeting. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that I would step down, that, that you would come up. And uh, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to talk about the problem of evil. And uh, we'll, we'll go into, delve right into it. Uh, here you have some of the, some pictures, some imagery of how evil is manifested from war. We have uh, terrorism that we've never seen before. We have the Syrian uh, refugee crisis going on. Uh, uh, people being displaced. Uh, you have uh, pictures here of, of the Holocaust. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the Holocaust. Uh, how many of you have read a, the book by Elie Wiesel called Night? How many of you read that, that book before? There's a couple passages that are very striking in that book. How many of you, when you read that book, found it to be a very gripping book? I mean, it's a it's very sobering book. You don't walk away after reading that book with a smile, right? Um, it's very, very sobering. And it, it brings one to, to just really uh, to, to pause and to reflect on, on evil in ways that perhaps you never have before. And uh, this book, um, I don't necessarily recommend that you read it, uh, but uh, I read it uh, some years ago, actually many years ago. And as I was preparing this, uh, I remembered re reading some of his words that describe uh, evil, and, and he was face-to-face -face with evil in the extermination of the Jews. And uh, you have uh, some of the imagery, some of the pictures here. I want to read uh, an excerpt from his book. Notice what he says. He says, Babies, yes, I did see this, children thrown into the flames. How is it possible that men, women, and children were being burned and the world kept silent. I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify his name? The Almighty, the eternal and terrible master of the universe chose to be silent. In other words, when these atrocities were taking place, where was God? Goes on to say, never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. But now, and then he reached a point later on in the book as he's describing his experience. He comes to a point where he says, but now I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser. God the accused. I no longer accepted God's silence. 
As I swallowed my ration of soup, I turned that act into a symbol of rebellion, of protest against God. Um, one one uh, uh, Bible thinker has, has uh, thought of, of these things, and he, he says this. He says, we're not told, or not in any way that satisfies our puzzled questioning, how and why there is radical evil within God's wonderful, beautiful, and essentially good creation. One day I think we shall find out, but I believe we are incapable of understanding it at the moment, in the same way that a baby in the womb would lack the categories to think about the outside world. This is a modern author. Bible writers have also struggled with this question of evil. Job states in in chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Another way to say that is, why is there no justice with God? And why do those who know him never see his days? The wicked seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox. And then he's describing the poor. They go about naked without clothing. They're hungry. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan. So here's this picture of, of the wicked. They're successful. Things are going all so well for them. And on the other hand, there's poor, the poor, the innocent, without clothing, suffering. And from out of the city, the dying groan. And the soul of the wounded cries for help. And yet God charges no one with wrong. So he's beholding the injustice that's taking place in the world. And he's asking God rhetorically, he is charging no one with wrong. God, where is your justice? Faithful men of scripture lamented, have lamented in angst, questioning a silent God in the midst of atrocities at the hands of the wicked. How many of you have read the book of Psalms? You find it uh, uh, rampant throughout the, the book of Psalms, where, where, God, where the psalmist and David is, 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 is asking and pleading with God, why do uh, the wicked seem to be so prosperous, and yet the faithful suffer so often? Whoops. Accidentally skipped ahead here. Before we go any further, I want to um, uh, divide evil into two categories, or evil is often divided into two categories, just uh, so that we're aware of this. Uh, the first is natural evil. And so natural evil would include like tornadoes and earthquakes and tidal waves and floods, disease, deformity. Uh, birth defects, cancer, and strokes, right? This is what, what uh, we would call natural evil. And then you have moral evil. Individuals who intentionally kill others with, with guns or with bomb. And, and with, uh, it also can include uh, lies and, and theft and so on. That's what we call moral evil. And I, I want to say just a couple of things in regards to natural evil before we move on. People often ask the question, where was God 
when natural disasters take place. And we need to bear in mind that most of the world's evil is a result of human sin and depravity. Natural disasters aren't, and also we need to keep in mind that natural disasters aren't necessarily the direct result of God's judgments upon people more wicked than you. Okay, So oftentimes when you see natural disasters take place, for example, in this country, uh, you'll have a lot of church leaders and spiritual leaders uh, uh, saying, well, it's because of this, or it's because uh, they're racist, or it's because uh, they promote homosexuality. I'm not denying that those judgments are not taking place. And it's one thing to say that, that God is enacting judgment, but it's another thing to say uh, on our high and holy horses, uh, we're, we're not getting those condemnations because we're righteous and you're not. And so we need to uh, make sure and, and, and keep and, and bear in mind and not to be uh, Job's friends, the equivalent of Job's friends. Don't play God in casting your own moral judgment on victims of natural d- disasters. I do appre- appreciate uh, the General Conference World Church leader, uh, uh, Elder Ted Wilson, when natural disasters have taken place, he has always uh, shared, hey, let's, let's pray for these people, let's help these people, and this should be our attitude and our mindset as we see natural disasters take place. So let's go to the problem of evil. And uh, I'm, I'm going to admit I don't have all the answers to all these questions, but this is at least an introduction or a beginning to responding to the problem of evil. And I'm going to re- respond uh, to two questions. Firstly, or number one, why evil exists in the first place? Said another way, why is evil happening? Why does evil exist in the first place? And the second question we're, we're going to uh, ask or, or, or address is what is God doing about it? What is God doing about it? So number one, why evil exists in the first place? I want to start with uh, a passage from the book, Great Controversy, dealing with the existence of evil. And she puts it very, very well. She says, to many minds, the origin of sin and the reason for its existence are a source of great perplexity. I don't think you would be in here if it wasn't some source of perplexity to you. They see the work of evil with its terrible results of woe and desolation. And they question how all this can exist under the sovereignty of one who is infinite in wisdom, in power, and in love. Here is a mystery of which they find no explanation. And in their uncertainty and doubt, they are blinded to truths plainly revealed in God's word and essential to salvation. There are those who in their inquiries concerning the existence of sin endeavor to search into that which God has never revealed. Hence, they find no solution of their difficulties and such as are actuated by a disposition to doubt and cavil, seize upon this as an excuse for rejecting the words of Holy Scriptures. Yet, enough may be understood 
concerning both the origin and the final disposition or the final settlement of sin to make fully manifest the justice and the benevolence of God in all his dealings with evil. Nothing is more plainly taught in Scripture than that God was in no wise responsible for the entrance of sin, that there was no arbitrary withdrawal of divine grace, no deficiency in the divine government that gave occasion for the uprising of rebellion. So with that said, we're going to delve right into it. Epicurus, a Greek philosopher in the third century, so a long time ago, put, posed the, the issue this way. He said, hey, either God wants to abolish evil and can't, or he can, but he doesn't want to. If he wants to, but cannot, that would make him impotent. If he can but chooses not to, then that would make him wicked. If God can abolish evil, in other words, if he truly is omnipotent and God really wants to do it, the question is, why is there evil in the world? Is that a pretty good question? That's a pretty good question. and It's a good question. It's a reasonable question. Question. But the response is, is actually a very, very simple one. And it goes something like this. There was a morally sufficient justification for permitting evil. There was a morally sufficient justification for permitting evil. It's possible God could only bring about certain positive realities by permitting evil. Okay, let me repeat that. It's possible that God could only bring about certain positive realities by permitting evil. So the question then we must ask is, what is that sufficient justification, that moral, morally sufficient justification? What positive realities are we talking about? And whenever we engage in an explanation for why evil has, uh, why God has permitted evil to exist and continue, uh, we call that, we're engaging in the work of a theodicy, or, and you probably have heard that word before. And so we're going to delve into a theodicy uh, this afternoon. And I'm going to start with the great controversy argument. Number one, destroying Lucifer and evil, and hence evil, immediately, destroying Lucifer immediately wasn't a good idea. Okay? Destroying Lucifer immediately wasn't a good idea. Why? Well, God's character, in the context of the great controversy, God's character, his law, and his management of the universe was being discredited by Lucifer. Lucifer also claimed that he had something better to offer, and he was spreading and instilling that data and information with other inhabitants in heaven. And you can read about that in the book Great Controversy. Consequently, now, now listen very carefully, the universe at large, right, not just the angels, but the worlds beyond, 
all created beings had honest questions that necessitated an open, comprehensive response to resolve the accusations of Lucifer. If God had eradicated Lucifer at the point of his rebellion, the consequences would have been disastrous for two reasons. Number one, the accusations of Lucifer would have remained ambiguous and unsettled. And that's a very important point. The accusations of Lucifer would have remained ambiguous and unsettled. It wasn't merely a point of God saying, hey, look, this is the real deal. When Lucifer was questioning God's very response to these things. Number two, he could not eradicate Lucifer at the point of rebellion because if he had done so, fear would have replaced love as the motivation. How many of you have brothers and sisters? Brothers and sisters, how many of you have been involved in an age-old, good old spanking before? All of you, okay. How many of you have been punished together with your sibling? How many of you have sat down? I have a brother, by the way. You sit down, and, um, uh, and, and so we're getting punished. You know, Koreans are really strict, you know, and Korean dads can, can uh, uh, be, be um, scary. And so you're sitting down, and let's just say that you, uh, my dad asks us uh, a question of something that we did clearly wrong, and let's just say my dad knew the truth, Right? And my brother, not knowing that, lied, right? And as soon as he lies, he gets called out on it, and he gets spanked harder. And I'm observing that. All right, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to tell the truth. What is my motivation? Exactly. Absolutely fear. Now, my dad wasn't abusive. I don't want you to get the the wrong impression that, that he was abusive, but... The illustration is this. The point of the illustration is that God could not uh, uh, um, uh, eradicate Lucifer for, for both of these reasons combined. Okay, There were unsettled questions and fear would have replaced love as a motivating factor and that would have been disastrous for the universe at large. So resolving the issue demanded the process of time and events. Right? Time and events. God had the end in mind. And, and, and being God, he knew what the end was. And so God understood that these unresolved questions could only be settled. And this is a very important point, another important point. These unresolved questions could only be settled by created beings themselves, individually. Okay? Uh, they are sentient thinking, thoughtful creatures that God has made. And they must come to a place where these questions are resolved um, and not coerced. That is not how God operates. Only then could Lucifer's charges be settled forever and beyond all question. An intelligent decision of God's creation demanded access to the facts and all of them. And that would take time and the process of events to occur. Thus, Lucifer, sin and evil were permitted to continue. This serves as a morally 
sufficient justification, one of them, for allowing evil to exist. God could only bring about certain positive realities by permitting evil. And I want to go ahead and share where some of these concepts are derived from. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41 and 42, God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed, that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. The true character of the usurper and his real object must be understood. By the way, this assumes that his real object was not understood by the heavenly uh, beings. Secondly, God permitted Satan to demonstrate the nature of his claims, that evil is the result of God's government. His own work, Satan's own work, must condemn him. The whole universe must see the deceiver unmasked. Infinite wisdom, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Since only the service of love can be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. Had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than love. And the final point here, the inhabitants of heaven and of the worlds could not then have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed. Remember, I talked about there were unsettled questions. Nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. Evil must be permitted to come to maturity. Why God? Oh, I did have one more uh, quote here. And this provides the comprehensive um, picture here. For the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages, Satan must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all questioned. Said another way, it was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that, remember I've been emphasizing, that time must be given for Satan to develop his principles, which were the foundation of his system of government. He claimed that these were superior to God's. All right. I want to provide a second argument. It's called the freedom of will defense. And this is going to take a little mental activity. Uh, hopefully you didn't eat too much of a lunch that your food isn't clogging up your brain. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm glad that they didn't serve Indian food because it would be clogged. By the way, I love Indian food. I love Indian food. It's, uh, I can't eat it when I'm speaking or when I need to really use my brain. Uh, because it's typically buffets and, and, you, and you eat a little more there. So the freedom of will defense. Um, 
God desires from his creatures a service of love, right? An homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced allegiance, and to all he grants freedom of will that they may render in voluntary service. Now, the freedom of will argument, it goes something like this. Now, now follow me here. Number one, a world where free creatures exist is preferable to a world absent of free creatures. Would you agree with that? Yes. Two, God's original created beings, Lucifer, Adam, and Eve, had true freedom of will. Thus, the underlying basis of love as, uh, is what actuated their decisions. Three, God doesn't cause or force his creatures to do only that which is morally good. He doesn't cause them. He doesn't determine uh, his creatures to do only that which is morally good. If he did so, they wouldn't be truly free. Would you agree with that? Number four, in order to create creatures with the capacity for moral good, God had to create them with the capacity for evil and not prevent them from committing evil. Would you agree with that? Five, God's free creatures chose to rebel against his or their maker. Six, thus evil exists. Ultimately, God could have prevented evil only by preventing the capacity for good. So said another way, Alvin Platinga, he's one who has spent a lot of time thinking about this question. And he's written a book that essentially has, 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 has silenced uh, the criticism or the attacks by the atheists uh, in regard to the question of evil. Um, and so you'll find that many uh, people who are involved with this question will, will cite Alvin Platinga because essentially uh, for those who are in the know, uh, those who deal with this subject at an academic philosophical level uh, uh, pretty much understand that this question is no longer up for debate. And notice what he says here. He says a really top-notch universe requires the existence of free, rational, and moral agents. And some of the free creatures he created went wrong. But the universe with the free creatures it contains and the evil they commit is better than it would have been had it contained no free creatures, nor this evil, right? Because the other option would have been for God to take away the freedom of will. And, and, and that is not a viable option for God. The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against his goodness. For he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. Now keep in mind, Alvin Platinga is not an Adventist, but when you actually take his statements and combine it what, what, with what we know as Adventists, it's a very profound and, and, and a very strong argument that we have when it comes to the existence of evil and, and an all-powerful power, and all-loving God allowing it to go on. We also have, theologically speaking, the fall of man defense, right, as uh, a reason for the existence of evil. The fall is unique to Christianity in explaining the existence of evil uh, in our world. 
It assumes that the abnormality, and by the way, sin and evil is an abnormality, that this, this phenomenon that we see within the creation order is not intrinsic to humans or nature. The fall explains the abnormality and dysfunction of humans and society. It explains moral evil being the result of depraved natures and the rebellious will of human beings. And so, uh, so we have some philosophical arguments, the great controversy argument, the, the free will argument, uh, the fall of man argument, and then the question uh, remains, Okay, so we understand why God permitted evil to go on and for as long as it has. But the question remains, what is God doing about evil? What is God's solution to evil? Is he just standing back and not doing anything? Is he truly silent, as even some Bible writers have, have, have in their angst and in their um, own suffering have cried out to God, where are you? And I'm sure some of you in this room have cried out to God, where are you in, uh, in, in the pain and misery that we see in this world? What is God doing about it? So here's a biblical response, right? The biblical narrative, both the Old and the New Testament, is composed of stories of God's dealings with the depraved world that is prone to evil. God's plan to counteract evil, more often than not, is stymied by man's rebellion. Remember, God, um, God raised up the people of Israel to be expositors of his character, his word, and, and to be a blessing to the nations. But his plan was stymied because of the free uh, uh, choice and, and, and the fr freedom of will of, 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 of his creatures by man's rebellion. Nevertheless, God in his love and mercy met humanity at his weakest point and found the ultimate victory over evil in the death of the Son of God. So I want to ask this question. What is God doing about evil? One response is simply that he died. What is God doing about evil? He died. He died for all the sins and all the evil that has ever been committed. Those sins were placed upon him. And he paid the penalty of the evil that we see in this world. Desire of Ages, page 22. From the beginning, God and Christ knew of the apostasy of Satan and the fall of man through the, through the deceptive power of the apostate. God did not ordain that sin should exist, but he foresaw its existence and made provision to meet this terrible emergency. All the evil, all the atrocities, the genocide, the injustice, all the evil ever committed in the past, the present, and the future— was placed upon Jesus as his guilt, his own guilt, and he died the death that humanity deserved. What did God do about evil? He died. And what is God doing about evil? He forgives. And thus we should too. Thus we should too. The cross provides the basis to forget, not vertically, 
right? God can never forget the pain we've caused him. He's God. But for us to forget horizontally the sins that others have inflicted upon us, right? God said uh, God enjoins us to forgive others as he has forgiven you and I. And so what has God done about evil or what is God doing about evil? He forgives and he also asks us to forgive others for the evil they commit against us. What is God doing about evil? He stops it before it gets out of hand. We find this in the story of the the flood. Now, this is a negative example in the sense that there's destruction. We also see it in in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the destruction of the Canaanites, and ultimately in the demise of Israel and Judah, uh, God's people themselves. The flood is one way God responds to evil. The flood occurred because God had to stop evil before it got out of hand. I'm not going to read this entire passage, but notice what what Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 91, in describing the evil of of the pre-flood generation. Crime and wretchedness rapidly increased. Men exulted in their deeds of violence. They delighted in destroying the life of animals. They came to regard human life with astonishing indifference. The Bible puts it this way in Genesis chapter 6. And again, I'm not going to read all of it, but the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. His heart was only evil continually. The Lord was, it it grieved the Lord. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. One a Bible commenter uh, stated this way, the flood stands as a reminder that God hates evil and what it does to his creation, that he can and sometimes will take steps to stop it in its tracks, but that precisely because he is the sovereign creator, he will find a way of working through and out the other side to fulfill the purpose which he still intends for his creation. What is God doing about evil? This is an example in the positive. He established the people to counteract evil, injustice, and immorality. He established uh, in, in Abraham and in his call a people to be expositors of the word of God and to be a blessing to all nations. We find that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that he would be a blessing, that in him all the families of the earth would be, be blessed. Of course, we know that that pointed ultimately to Christ, but it also pointed to God's, uh, the children of Israel, as they would reflect God's character to the world. What is God doing about e- evil? He utilizes it for his good. Now, God didn't bring about evil so that he could bring about good. That would make God responsible for evil. I'm not saying that whatsoever. What I am saying is that God is the master chess player, right? Not saying that he plays chess either. But God is the master chess player who is able to counteract evil and to utilize it for his good. Let me give you an example of that in the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph reveals in one story evil, the evil of his brothers in selling him. 
And at the same time, you see God's sovereignty and goodness in utilizing and counteracting evil for the good. You see this in Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to, and verses 4, 5, 7, and 8. For sake of time, we have to skip some of these verses. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. In other words, I know you did me evil. You did me harm. But you know what? God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep you alive for many survivors. So, ultimately, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That ultimately, God used Joseph. And the evil that was enacted upon him, God used it ultimately for his good. And we see the the marvelous wisdom and character of God in that. What is God doing about evil? The judgment argument. The justice argument. This is a a question that's raised, and it's a very good question, because the, the, the claim is made that, you know, God just forgives people, and doesn't that belittle the evil that, that has been done. What do you say to that young girl who was victimized, right? Doesn't, doesn't forgiving that person just, just minimize the atrocity that he, the atrocities that he and others are committing? Doesn't that negate uh, justice? And, um, and of course, the answer to that would be uh, Jesus died on the cross for that very sin so that people like him, by God's grace, should uh, he repent and change his way, God could save even that person. You know, Manasseh, who sought Isaiah in half, in half, will be in heaven by the grace and mercy of God. So what is God doing about evil? He forgives, but there's also uh, something that, that must happen in terms of God's justice for those who do not repent and turn from their evil. There is justice. So this question is raised. God may forgive evil done in the past, but the evil that was done to the Jews, we just saw that in the Holocaust, the murdered man and his family, the rape victim, the family decimated by by drunk driver, the relatives of those killed by a terrorist bomb. What right has God to say? Critics of God uh, pose this question. What right has God to say that this evil can somehow be wiped away? so that it appears not to exist anymore. Is this not simply another way of belittling evil, making it appear that it isn't really as important as all that? And what right has God to say that he forgives the offender when it is Joe Smith and not God who has really been hurt? God deals with the question on the basis of, number one, forgiveness. We just talked about that. And number two, the judgment that evil will be judged, and that there will be justice. I want to provide several biblical passages here, right? Here you have the psalmist uh, uh, describing his experience that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he says, you know, but, you know, in my experience, I'm summarizing here, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, because I was envious of the arrogant, 
I see, I saw their prosper, the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pains until death. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They set their mouths against the heaven. They're even blasphemous. And then he says, he, he poses this rhetorical question, have I, have I kept my heart clean in vain and washed my hands in innocence? And, I, and then he says, but when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed wearisome until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then the light bulb clicked on and I discerned their end. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Um, a passage in Revelation. This question is also asked in Revelation. I saw those under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? In other words, how long before justice will take place on those who dwell on the earth? And they were told to rest a little longer. And then in Revelation chapter 16, the answer is given. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they the word there is axios, which means it is what they are deserving of or it is their due. And I heard the altar say, saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your, ju are your judgments. Evil will be terminated in justice at the second death. In the book, Great Controversy, in the chapter of the controversy ended, in the cleansing flames, the wicked will at last be destroyed, root and branch. Satan, the root, his followers, the branches. Quoting Malachi, they are alluding to Malachi. The full penalty of the law has been visited. The demands of justice have been met. And heaven and earth, beholding, declare the righteousness of Jehovah. I want to end with this other, this final thought that when it comes to evil uh, in this world, what should be our perspective? And we have to understand that God has eternity in mind and that you and I should do. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. These things that, we are, that are seen are transient, they're temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In Romans chapter 8, I love how Paul puts it here. It's almost like he's, he's looking at a scale and, and weighing uh, the life on earth versus heaven. And then he's, he concludes the suffering of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Creation waits with eager longing in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage. But we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And finally, I love this passage in Revelation chapter 21, thinking with the end in mind and the, and the perspective of eternity that there will be a new heaven and a new earth when the first heaven and the first earth will have passed away and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How many of you are looking for a time when all this misery and pain we're seeing will one day be no more? And what a, what a day that that will be. I want to close uh, with this short quote as we conclude um, this, this series here. The history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it began in heaven to the final overthrow of rebellion and the total eradication of sin is a demonstration of God's unchanging love. Do you believe that? Let's go ahead and, and stand as we conclude this message for today. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I've been to many, many GYCs. Thursdays are a marathon. And we just thank you for the, the, the endurance of the saints. And we thank you for the, the strength for all the speakers in sharing the, the words of God. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, the things that we have learned will not just be head knowledge, that we will apply it to our heart. And Lord, we pray that ultimately that this question, the question of your character before the world and the universe as it is vindicated uh, through uh, your name and your work uh, in humanity and through humanity, that we will go forward and triumph as you give us the victory as it is in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.